What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. My name is Aaron Laxon. Alongside with Robert Brining, beaming across the United States and around the world. Your 90-minute dose of hope brought to you each and every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You may follow along in the conversation on social media, Facebook and Twitter, and PazIM. And at PazIM.org, that's PazIM.org. We encourage you to join in the conversation at 347 215 9442, that's 347-215-9442. 90 minutes, your dose of hope starts now. Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, Robert. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, I we are in the midst of a cold front here in the Midwest, and um, I refuse to leave my house. It's just horribly cold. Yes, it is. It's freezing here. It's our, our first real big. Well, not big. I mean, a few inches, and you know, who only likes a few inches of snow, but. That's all we got here. But it's cold. The, the the roads are icy. It's supposed to actually rain tomorrow. And this is actually my first day off after working six days straight, ten hours each day. So I'm exhausted. And, of course, I couldn't do anything because it's snowing and miserable. And tomorrow it's only supposed to rain on top of all the snow. So it's going to be horrible. Yeah, we're supposed to get more tonight. I know the, the cold, the Arctic cold, is not going to end until probably sometime next week. So... I guess we're just going to have to get used to being cold for the next little bit. Yes, well, hey, at least some of us have people to snuggle up to. Some of us who don't, I feel your pain. Hey, I have a dog, <laughs> so, you know, that that's better than any any person, right? How has your week been other than uh, a cold? Good, good. I've been productive at work, um, you know, and, and just kind of taking it slow, trying to enjoy the holiday spirit. I'm yeah. trying to get there, at least. You know, I'm trying to find out who's going to put up the Christmas tree this year because nobody's putting it up, so I'm going to try to get one put up somewhere. Well, it's just now, it seems like the weather is just now starting to make it kind of feel like uh, the holiday spirit. Um, yeah. But I know the last couple weeks it was like, well, you know, this isn't really the holidays. Even going into Thanksgiving, it didn't really seem like the holidays. So maybe that's all we needed was like a cold snap to really kind of pull us out of our slump. Yeah, well, what they were saying was is that since Thanksgiving was so late this year, um, this is actually, um, there was a, short, a shorter time between the holidays. So it feels like it's going to be so rushed now that, you know, 
Thanksgiving is over. Right. So it's been an, a pretty busy week this week, and last week we didn't play my sounder, but, you know, I'm going to have to play it this week because I'm going through withdrawal. So uh, we're going to jump right into the news, but first got to hear this. You are hotness. Work that bod. Oh, my God. Work that bod. Work it. Now do a little turn. You're doing great. You're a tiger. Oh, you're really an elephant. But I'm not going to tell you that. You're really an elephant. That's the best line. <laughs> that cracks me up every time I hear it. So there's been several news stories this week um, that I wanted to focus on. <clears throat> and um, uh, as most of the listeners probably know, um, uh, former President uh, Nelson Mandela passed away this week. Um, and so obviously many in the world are, are mourning his passing and recognizing, you know, what his contributions were, um, not only to uh, his country, but to basically humanity. Um, it, it's important to note that um, Mandela's son uh, actually died of AIDS. Um, his son um, was 54, and two other family members uh, later died as a complication of AIDS. Um, his public ad, uh, admission is considered a pivotal moment in how South Africa and much of the um, continent came to view AIDS um, as a, the AIDS epidemic. Um, because there were leaders that were in um, the country that, until recently, were in denial um, that AIDS even existed. Um, he was quoted as saying that we must not hide the cause of death of our respected family uh, because it's the only way that we can make people understand that HIV is an ordinary disease. Um, although an estimated 5 million South Africans were infected with HIV at the time, and two million had already died, AIDS was a very shameful and taboo topic, and that stigma had thwarted attempts to prevent and treat the disease. So, you know, I think it's very important for us to remember not only what uh, Mr. Mandela gave um, to the world, but what he gave to our, you know, movement. Um, and uh, certainly within the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, I have many uh, of my peers that are from um, Africa, and, uh, you know, we sent our condolences this past week to them. Um, certainly as they remember Mr. Medella, I would just ask for a time of reflection for all of our listeners and, and those living with HIV. Another um, thing that came across social media was uh, December 6th was actually the birthday for Ryan White. Um, I believe he would have been 42. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Ryan White was, um, he was a teenager from Kokomo, Indiana, who would become ultimately the poster child for the HIV-AIDS movement in the United States um, after being expelled from his school. Um, he went on to fight the Indiana um, uh, Department of Education um, until the time that he died. He really fought for um, for those that were living with HIV. And... and Many would consider that it wasn't until 
a, a white child became infected with HIV, that it really, you know, people really started paying attention to HIV because prior to that it was just considered IV drug users or um, homosexuals or things like that. And so... Homosexuals? Sorry. (laughs) What? I know, I know. Those homosexuals. I know, them, them gays... But, yeah, so, but Ryan was a hemophiliac who had contracted um, HIV through factor eight. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, it's always good for us to remember, you know, uh, Ryan White, obviously the the um, contribution that he and his family have made um, uh, to the movement. And, you know, we always want to remember those that we've lost along the way and, and uh, their their sacrifices. In more of a, a, a depre- not a depressing um, uh, note, a more somber note, um, media outlets around the country ran the article this week that HIV had returned to two cured patients in Boston, um, termed the Boston patients. Researchers announced that two men had previous, who had previously been believed to be cured of HIV um, had started to have a rebound in their virus and their blood. Uh, Dr. Timothy Heinrich, Associate Professor of Infectious Disease at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, announced the resurgence of the virus at the International Conference on AIDS Research in Florida. Uh, He said that the fact that these two men were showing signs of HIV means that the virus can lurk in places in the body where it's hard to find. Um, He went on to say that this suggests that we need to look deeper and we need to be looking uh, in other tissues, such as the liver, gut, and brain. Um, they're all potential sources, and it's very difficult to obtain um, uh, tissues from these places, um, so it's not something that's done routinely. So although this is disappointing news, um, as with most things science, uh, we are learning from it. Um, so uh, I would just you know, tell listeners not to be completely discouraged that this is pretty par for the course in regards to uh, cure research and uh, moving forward. And then finally, uh, you know, I just, I posted this on social media earlier this week and I kind of posted a snarky remark um, in regards to AHF. Um, The, this particular story came out of the New York Daily News, and the, um, the title was Another HIV Scare Shuts Down Porn Industry. Um, a male adult film actor has tested positive for HIV, leading to a moratorium on production. This is actually the fourth or fifth um, uh, actor, I use that term very loosely, actor um, who's contracted HIV. The adult film industry is pulling out, pulling out, pulling out of production <laughs> after another. This is actually what the story says: uh, pulling out after another porn star has tested positive for HIV. Um, the coalition uh, on free speech, um, an advocacy group for the industry, uh, said in a statement that the actor tested positive at one of the group's testing centers, and that the coalition ordered a halt to filming while all possible partners are tested. I, you know, I think this is interesting just for the simple fact that um, AHF poured so much money, poured millions of dollars into um, getting 
condoms required in all porn you know industry in Hollywood and you still have actors and actresses becoming infected so to me at least you know being a logical person that's telling me that they didn't have the intended effect effect that it you know was meant to so you know it, it'll be interesting to see what happens from that i you know there's there's debate on both sides of the argument some say well it's even though the proposition ha- has taken effect it's not being enforced um so i don't know time will tell uh, the number of permits though for film movies in hollywood have or porn movies have dropped 95 percent this this year so far um, after a new law in L.A. County requires actors to use condoms uh, that took effect last year, and many companies have either ignored the ban or they now film outside the county. So there you go. That's our uh, our look at across the social media sphere. Oh, well, well, there is one thing, uh, uh, other news, I guess, worthy thing that I'd like to bring up. Uh, you actually contacted me over the weekend and, and tweeted found a tweet that you came across um, that I kind of wanted to bring up from uh, Healthline.com. And I guess on World AIDS Day, they announced um, a few awards that they were actually giving away for the 2013 HIV Influencer Honors. And they they picked uh, 19 people or organizations that are tirelessly uh, spread awareness and help fight stigma in the public about HIV and AIDS. So um, actually, Aaron Wee, the show, was, you know, awarded um, one of these medals or badges um, from Healthline.com, and you actually came across the tweet and shared it with me, and I thought it was kind of cool that we were included with a bunch of other cool organizations like Pause Magazine, Positive Light, um, HIV Equal, Kevin Maloney, and uh, No Shame About Being HIV Positive. There's a lot of great organizations that were involved in this, the Sigma Project that were chosen, and um, it's awesome that you know we're being acknowledged for what we're doing here every week. Yeah, actually, uh, Mark, it was funny because last week we had Mark S. King on the show, and he was also one of the people that were recognized. And and so it was a well-rounded group of of activists and advocates that are – and organizations that are working really hard. Um, and so I – hats off to you, Robert, because this is something I contribute to, but this is really your passion. This is really your baby that you came up with the idea and you've kept it going for as long as it's been going. So, um, you know, kudos to Paz I am. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe in what we're doing. So it's it's phenomenal. So congratulations on that. Well, that's not just me. I mean, that also to Jeremy and Jack and to you, because all of you, you know, make and what it is as well, because it's not just me. It's it's all of us together doing the show and, and being here every week and, you know, having that dedication that is making a difference. So thank you, uh, Healthline.com, for the award. So go check it out. I put the link in the chat room for people to, uh, you know, check out all the people who are listed in those awards. That's It's awesome to, to be included with those people because there's so many amazing people on that. So I'm excited. It is. It is. So we have some uh, great guests coming up. Uh, we're actually going to be talking uh, about uh, motherhood and, and, you know, being an HIV-positive mother and what that is like. And we're going to be talking about 
you know, different topics we're going to be touching on, you know, telling your children that you're HIV positive and how each mother, you know, does that differently and uh, finding support, you know, and other mothers like you who are, are going through it. And, you know, mother-to-child transmission, I think that's a topic that a lot of people don't talk enough about. So I'm glad to have uh, Janine and Chelsea joining us this evening to, you know, share their information and, and their experiences with us. And I think it is something, I mean, you know, far too often whenever we think of HIV, we look at it through the context of, you know, gay men or, or you know, and, and gay men make up the majority of infections. That's true. Um, however, the conversation isn't really being had about, you know, what's that like for um, women who have children or even straight men, um, people that are outside the confines of that men who have sex with men um, a demographic. And so I think even though sometimes that, that may not be the largest majority of who's becoming infected, we can't forget about these other groups that are just as important, although may not be as large as the, the gay community or the LGBT community. I certainly agree. So um, let's take a little break here and play some PSAs for the audience while uh, we wait for Janine to call in. She will be our first uh, person. So let's say uh, we'll be right back. Here's your cappuccino, miss. Great, thanks. Coffee with cream? Look, almost half of all new STD infections are among young people 15 to 24 years old. Yet most infections have no symptoms. The only way to know for sure is to be tested. So GYT, get yourself tested. Visit GYTnow.org to find an STD testing location near you. A message from CDC. Yo, it's your boy Lil John right here. Hey, it's your boy Lil Bo. I'm serious, you know, this is your boy Big Sam. Lil John and me, side boys, we here for life beat. The music industry fights AIDS. Listen up, drinking and drugs make people do stupid things, like not protecting themselves when having sex. You might think it's all good, but it only takes one slip up to get infected with HIV. Don't become another statistic. Use protection. To learn more about HIV and AIDS, call the National AIDS Hotline at 1-800-342-8. AIDS or log on to www.lifebeat.org. There you have it. I, I love the selection of PSAs that I had to pick from now, Aaron. Little John is my homeboy. So let me just say <laughs> thank you. A shout out to Little John for giving us that PSA. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Little John. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and I'll bring on our first guest, uh, Janine Brignola. Welcome to the show. How are you, honey? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you back with us. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be asked on, so I appreciate it. Well, you know, you're you're an amazing person. You do great work out there in in the breath. I'm sorry, in <laughs> Omaha. <laughs> no, I live in Lincoln now. But oh, you moved from Omaha. That was my favorite. Yep. <laughs> so, so how how is it out there in Nebraska today? Are you dealing with any uh, cold weather and snow like we are over here? Oh my gosh, yes! I haven't left my house all day. I think I might go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and has your son get, got to go out and play in the snow yet? Nope, not today. I was lazy today, so he didn't get to uh, go out. <laughs> 
Well, there's always tomorrow. Yeah, after school. That's a good time. So, Janine, this is Aaron. I have not talked to you in forever, so uh, hello. Um, Hi. We are very excited about, uh, you know, obviously having you on. We want, you know, and maybe you heard we were talking about it before you came on. You know, many times whenever we talk about HIV, uh, obviously we want to get into your story and and the work that you're doing. Um, We really wanted to approach the, the angle of, you know, sometimes whenever we talk about HIV, Predominantly, the conversation is about gay men. Um, and, and so what, you know, I, I can only imagine that that presents challenges that sometimes, you know, sectors of our, demog- you know, our audience feels as if they're not being addressed or if it's, you know, a conversation that's not focused towards them. Um, can you kind of talk more about that and if that's, uh, if that's a feeling that's had by some? Well, obviously, um, it's, it's actually kind of funny because I spoke to someone earlier, and she's a woman living with HIV in uh, Michigan, and her and I were talking about that, about what it's like to be a woman living with HIV and what it's like to be a mother and what it's like to be in, uh, be like an activist or advocate um, where it is predominantly um, gay men, and it's it's always different. But, you know, I always look at it like if it wasn't for the gay men, um, where would we be? So I don't look at it, like, as a divide. I don't look at it as, oh, we're so different. I look at it as, you know, we're all different people, well, no matter what color, religion, race, you know, um, socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera, that we are, we're all just people. And at the end of the day, it does, the differences really don't matter. It's, you know, we're infected or affected by something that draws us together, and we have that in common. And what can we do together to make a difference? Um, it is difficult in some ways because a lot of things, a lot of focus is still on the gay male population. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing because the gay male population is disproportionately affected and infected with HIV and AIDS. Um, So it's not bad per se at all. It's just difficult in some ways as a woman I don't know, to get people maybe to listen or to feel like you have something to say or you have something pertinent to offer because uh, you are a woman and you are less, you know, demographically, you are not as affected by it. Uh, But, you know, um, I think I've had the fortune of, meeting some fabulous men. I mean, Dab Garner was the first person I ever spoke to um, when I first found out and I first started reaching out to people. Dab and Robert and Bob Bowers were like the first men that I ever spoke to. So for me, if it wasn't, well, Bob Bowers isn't gay, but, you know, if it wasn't for Robert and Dab, who are gay men, where would I be? You know what I mean? And would I have found the strength to share my story 
and to feel like it was important. So I don't know. I just uh, I think that if you have something to say and you think it's important and you're passionate about it, you will keep going and you don't shut up. I know I don't shut up. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what. I think that's good. The point that you bring up that you don't find it as a divide. And, you know, because a lot of people will look at that and, and see it as, oh, well, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. I can't relate to these people because they're all gay and I'm a woman. And, and you know, it's difficult sometimes at conferences when you go to the, to find other women that, you know, are in, in the same boat as you, that, that understand what it's like to be a mother and, and to have kids and to go to a diagnosis and, 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 you know, the scare of maybe possible transmission to the child if depending on when they were diagnosed, you know, just things along that. So I think for you to see that as something that you actually love and appreciate, you know, then I think that's kudos. I, I, I appreciate that because you do amazing things. So what is it that you do in Nebraska to find other women like you? Because do you go to support groups in, in Lincoln? Um, I do not go to a support group. Um, I, I did when I first found out, I, did, I went to a support group for a little while um, and I stopped going because our aid service organization actually intervened and kind of like hijacked the support group and took it over. And I wasn't comfortable going because the whole point for me was to go and be around other women living with us that could relate to me and that understood what I was going through and that I could learn from and that they could learn from me. Um, and I, I was just uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, it was taken over by people with good intentions but taken over by people who are not living with HIV and cannot relate on those on so many levels um, so I don't go to it but you know unfortunately here in Nebraska um, there are not a lot of women living with HIV and the women that are living with HIV they are not active any capacity um, there are a couple women that do things and they, that I know, and they're both like 50s and 60s, um, the two of them. So that, you know, is a little difficult for us to maybe relate on some levels. But at the same time, you know, I can learn from these women who are older than me, who have experienced more life than me, um, and who can, you know, I don't know, pass information along to me about what it's like to age with HIV or what it's like to be that old or, you know, with HIV. Um, so I don't know. I, I always try to look for similarities. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, there is not a lot of opportunities and there's not a lot of involvement by women. Um, you know, it took me, you know, Positive Women's Network, it took me like oh, three years of being active in activism and advocacy before I even found out about, like, Positive Women's Network, which are women that are extremely active and make a huge difference in the community. And there are little, like, organizations like that all over, but they're the biggest that I know of for women only. And, you know, it's, it's hard to find things, but once you do, you can get connected to women all over that understand and you can relate and you can talk. So for me, like, no, I don't do the, the support groups I have, but I have, you know, an amazing online community of friends across the, 
world that are women that are living with HIV and that understand it. So and that that's awesome. Let's um let's go back to the beginning, kind of when you were diagnosed and and what led you to get tested and and t- talk us through a little bit about you know how it all started for you. Okay. Well, I uh, was about three months pregnant, and I have been, um, I had went to the doctor, and, you know, they check you for everything, and they asked if I wanted to be checked for it, and I said yes. Um, So I got checked, and um, they didn't say anything, and then they, I went back in because they said they needed more blood work, and um, I didn't. They didn't tell me why. They just told me they needed more. And I basically just thought like maybe I had, I don't know, like gestational diabetes or something. Um, and so I gave them the blood, and then like I don't know, a week or two later, whatever it was, they called me and they were like, "We need you to come in." And I said, "You know what's wrong?" And I was like. They were like, well, we just need you to come in. We need to talk to you. And I was like, okay, well, you're scaring me. Uh, you need to, like, tell me what's going on so I don't wreck my car driving there. And she just basically told me, you know, you're HIV positive. And I was just like, holy crap. Um, but I don't know. I mean, uh, it's 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 hard because I've came so far. When I first found out, you know, and I've shared this, multiple times, but I stood in my kitchen with a knife at my wrist and I was going to kill myself. And the only reason I didn't was because I was pregnant. Um, and that's so like what literally... So about the baby? I mean, were you educated about HIV or were you worried about no. transmission or... Yeah, no, I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, I remember sitting there and all I thought was, oh my God, I made this huge mistake and look what I did. And now this baby, this unborn child in my womb is going to live a miserable life because of my mistake and how could I do this um but I just I just couldn't kill myself just because I knew if I killed myself the baby would die so that is literally what stopped me and I don't know the whole time I was pregnant you know uh when I first found out I was going to the doctors here and I ended up calling up to Omaha, I was in Lincoln, and I ended up calling up to doctors in Omaha, and they were like, you're not on antiretrovirals yet? You're not on meds? And I was like, no. And they were like, oh, my God, Like, you need to get in here right now. You need to get on medication. And they just couldn't believe that the doctors here did not put me on medication. So I um, went up there, and then I ended up moving up there before I gave birth to my son um, because the care was much better, and they actually knew some things about HIV and AIDS. Uh, and, you know, they kept telling me I could have a natural childbirth. I didn't believe them, but I did. And my son is fine. He's six years old and he's negative. And, you know, it is were, the... Oh, go ahead. Were, were there any precautions that you took um, while you were pregnant to, to uh, you know, help that your son come out negative or...? Just the medication that were prescribed to me, and I just took them exactly how I was supposed to take them, and I adhered so to them. When they when you when they gave you this prescription, did they tell you that this is going to you know help your child come out negative? It's you know greater risk or yes. And then after he was born, after you have your baby, um, you have to give them like uh, injections, 
or medication, I, and I call it injections because they give you a syringe to give it to them orally, or at least they did for my son. And um, so I did that, and, uh, you know, I just made sure that I did exactly what they told me to do as far as that, that went. And I, uh, you know, uh, when he was a little over 18 months, we went for the last appointment for him to be checked, and then he was negative still. And so it, you know, it just worked out. Um, there was only one time, you know, there are a lot of times at first that I would, I would be really afraid to touch his food, um, mm-hmm. or I would be really afraid to prepare his food, or I'd be really afraid to, like, give him baths sometimes. I would freak out and be like, I'm going to infect him. Oh, my God. And uh, I, uh, one time he was taking a, he was taking a bath, and I had left my razor down. I usually put my razor up, and I left it down, and I went downstairs to get a dryer, I mean a towel out of the dryer, and I came back up, and he had got my razor, and he had a scab on his leg, and he was like, look, Mom, I'm shaving it off like you do. And I was like, oh, my God. Because that is one thing that they tell us, not to share razors. So right. I slipped out. I took him to the, you know, I took him to the emergency room, and they gave me this medication to give him for like post exposure, and he took it for maybe I don't know, maybe he took like three or four doses of it. And the funny thing is, I still have it sitting in my refrigerator <laughs> because mm-hmm. I've never used it. But he would not take it, and I mean, I literally, my mo- my mother had to help me, and I had to like hold him down, hold his arms, and pry his mouth open to make him take this medication, and he would just gag and want to throw it up. And I was like, what the heck? And so I tasted it, and it literally tastes like something that you would imagine poison would taste like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's horrible. And I sat there, and I was just like, oh, my God, like, how can they give this to kids? And it, it, But that, you know, I mean, at least there's precautions. But it mm-hmm. just, you know, and thankfully he was still negative, um, but it's just, you know, if you take the medication and you do what you're supposed to do and you just adhere to it and take the advice of the doctors, it's not as big of a deal. It's more of, I think, the psychological fear that you have, especially if you come from a background where you didn't have any information or education mm-hmm. really about HIV or AIDS beforehand, but, you know, it's a process like anything else, I guess. So, so how did your family react? Did you, when, when first of all, did you, because you were diagnosed when you were a few months pregnant, um, did your mm-hmm. family already know about you being pregnant at the time, or? Oh, yeah, they knew. Situation? So they knew that you were pregnant, and then you had to then go home and then tell them that you were positive, or, or how long did that take until you had that conversation? And then what was their reaction? Were they, I mean, because well, you said you weren't that educated, were they? No. Um, well, my father was here, um, was at the house when I got the call from the doctor's office and he had seen it on the caller ID. So he came downstairs and he sat next to me and I was bawling. I thought it was hysterical. And, and he was like, what's wrong? And I told him and he started crying. And it was the second time in my life. My father, like, you know, grew up in New York, New Jersey, Italian. Um, and he kind of old school. And I've only seen him cry one other time. And that was when my sister died and that was at her funeral so that was that's something that's always been very significant um 
my mom, I don't even remember the conversation of when I told my mom. Um, but I don't know. Like, I never really hit it. And, like, my friends and my family, they basically knew right away. Um, I didn't obviously, like, broadcast it or, you know, go out and talk about it all the time. But I never hid it from anyone either. It was just really uncomfortable. Um, and there were people that I would meet um, in different, I don't know, di- just different ways or whatever the case, and kind of befriend, and I wouldn't necessarily tell them right away, but I would just feel so uncomfortable. I mean, you know me, and, and you don't know me that well, but you know me, and you know that I'm just, I have a very loud, outspoken, bold personality. So for me, it was so difficult to just try to keep all that to myself because I'm just not that person. I don't know. But I don't know. I mean, they, no one was really, I'm trying to think. No one was really weird about it. My best friend at the time, my first doctor's appointment I ever went to, I sat there and I said, oh, my God, I have to do something about this. Like, I have to talk about this. People have to know about this. This isn't supposed to happen. Like, I have to do something. And she was just like, you're, you know, you're pretty and nobody will know, so just don't tell people and just wear condoms. And I was like, I can't do that. And I didn't, you know, get involved in activism and advocacy right away, but I didn't hide it. And, and well, she and she also told me I was selfish that I should have an abortion and that I was selfish for wanting to have my son because there is still like a 0.04% chance you can pass the virus on. But still, um, I don't know. That's really the only thing I remember from the people that I that were close to me back then. Um, that was negative, I guess. Uh, What, um, so, you know, when you had your son, was there a time where, you know, obviously you had to have that conversation about, you know, obviously I have something, uh, you know, so can you tell us about what was that like to have that conversation and when did you choose to have that conversation, if you have chosen to have that conversation, to let him know that, you know, I have something that, that, you know, and, and I don't even know how to even verbalize that um, to a child, but can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I always told him, since I can remember, um, I just broke it down in kid terms. Um, and I just said to him, you know, I have mommy has bugs in her blood that you don't have. And you can't ever touch mommy's blood or Band-Aids or anything with mommy's blood on it because I don't want you to get the bugs that I have in my blood in yours. And so, and he's just always understood. You know, it's funny, um, I talked about this, like, a couple months ago when I, I think, uh, when I talked to you guys on here, but um, I, uh, he was in kindergarten last year, and you know, Robert, he came to, like, conference last summer, and... He is so um, cute. Let me just tell you, he's the cutest (laughs) kid ever. Sorry. Thank (laughs) you. No, thanks. But he, um... You know, and I do, like, gay and lesbian rights. I'm straight, but I do gay and lesbian rights, too. So my son would walk around and be like, my mom's famous. She's been on billboards, and she has HIV. And, like, he's crazy. Uh (laughs) And he'd be like, he'd be like, gay people should get married and should be treated just like we are. Like, and I was like, I told him, I said, Fred, you have to be careful, though. Like, you can't go around and talk about that stuff. So I think, like, more than even having the conversation with him about, like, mommy has bugs in her blood, 
And, you know, obviously as he's aged, I've been able to explain a little bit more. You know, he knows I'm on medication. He knows I'm sick. And he knows that sometimes I'm tired or weak because of it or I don't feel good because of it. Um, And he just knows to stay away from my blood. And, I mean, obviously he can't really comprehend a lot more than that at six years old. But it's just been a process of teaching him now that, there are some things, especially because of the personality I have, because I'm so open and I'm so honest and forthcoming and outspoken, I think he didn't get that, like, there are some things that are just for, like, the family. And especially because he knows that I'm so public about HIV um, and he's been exposed to that by, you know, coming with me to, like, award dinners. And, you know, he I've taken him on, like, marches with me and protesting with me. And so it's uh, it's just been like the conversation now of telling him it's not okay to tell everyone because some people won't understand and they could be mean to you because of that. And I don't want people being mean to you because of me. And, you know, last year in kindergarten at parent-teacher conferences, I actually had to speak to his teacher and tell his teacher, that, you know, I'm HIV positive, and if my son ever says anything about HIV in the classroom, that's why, um, because he started talking about it a lot. And I was like, so I just want you to know, <laughs> and, you know, this is like suburbia central, where it's like predominantly white suburban, like upper middle class, middle class, like people, and their kids are all like, 2.5 kids with the picket fence and I'm like hi I'm covered in tattoos and I have HIV and I'm an activist and uh, you know just in case my son starts talking about HIV and gay rights uh, don't be mean to him please <laughs> so that was interesting but you know it's just he's starting to get now that there's just some things that you need to keep to yourself and that there's some things that it's not for everyone How, how old is he now? He's six. He's six. And that's the same age as my niece right now, and she don't really ask too many questions about HIV or anything, but she knows that, you know, that I am, you know, HIV positive or I have something that's called HIV, and she doesn't really know much about it, but she knows that, you know, sometimes Uncle Bobby is sick, and it's it's interesting how they can still understand even at that age that, it's yeah. going to be okay. So that's interesting. I, yeah. I think it, it's interesting how the kids' minds actually, you know, think. Yeah, it is. Have you actually, you know, I, I know you do a lot of work across the country, um, and, you know, obviously have you become one of those people that are the go-to, you know, when it comes to motherhood and having children? And, um, you know, I always find it very interesting the amount of people that we have contacting us um, or that have heard through the grapevine, you know, what we do. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what that does for you, you know, because you said that there's not a lot of services there and, and you know, where you live. Um, so a lot of the work that you do is, is through social media and, and other formats. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just uh... – um, I guess in some ways I'm a go-to in some ways. 
um, for like uh, motherhood and HIV and that kind of stuff. And I get asked a lot of questions about that. But, you know, what I get more than anything from anyone, and these are people like in other countries, um, a lot of people in like Haiti and Africa and a lot of women um, and a lot of men too, but what I get more than anything is people always ask how I'm so strong and how I have the courage to be so honest and how I do it. And, you know, the thing for me is that always, like, blows my mind, like, literally, because uh, I don't think of myself as being some extraordinary individual. I just think of myself as being someone who got infected with HIV and got pissed off because people were treating her like shit and was like, screw you, you're not going to treat me that way and I'm going to go make a difference in this world and I don't really care what you think. Um, and then, you know, it became, I don't know, whatever it's become and it's, it, it was not what it was intended. Like I never set out with the intention to become whatever I am. And, uh, I don't know, for me, like I said, people are always just like, how are you so honest about everything? Because I talk a lot, especially like on my YouTube stuff, I talk a lot about a lot of the other adversities in life that I've gone through and that I deal with. And people are just like, how do you do it? And I look at it like, this is my life. Um, This is what I live every day. And for me, it's not that extraordinary. It's just my life. Um... And that, I don't know, it's just weird because I think what I've found is every person has a story, whether they have HIV or they don't have HIV, but, you know, specifically people with HIV, all of us have a story and have a past and have the hard things that we've gone through and have, you know, uh, something to offer and something to teach and something that can help other people. So I think what I've found is it takes, every one of us to make a difference because if it was just gay men, if it was just, you know, that woman over there or this or that, you know, it wouldn't like every one of us reaches someone different, if that makes sense. And, you know, I've just been fortunate enough through social media, through technology, through conferences and networking and meeting people just because I got pissed off and I wanted to make a difference that I've been able to, meet a lot of people and, I don't know, come up with ways to try to make a difference. Um, And they have in some capacity. And because of the people that I'm around, we can work together and we can all make a difference and we can all, you know, utilize whatever we have to do that. So, you know, men, women, gay, straight, black, white, Hispanic, whatever. So, I don't know. That's awesome. Um, if our listeners are wanting to find out more about you or wanting to contact you on social media, how would they do that, Jean? Um, I don't know. Honestly, I guess the best way to reach me is uh, through my Facebook account. But you can send me messages at YouTube, and I'm going to be honest, I'm very bad about checking my YouTube. I haven't checked it for a couple months. I just checked the inbox last night, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so bad. <laughs> and... Um, so Facebook's the best way. And then my email, I have a blog for the body, 
and on my blog on the body they have my email attached to it and a lot of people have been sending me messages um, via that email and that works also because it goes right to my phone um, but yeah just any way that you know works for them too I guess well fantastic we really appreciate you coming on and uh, we wish you continued su- uh, success in the upcoming year and uh, in what you're doing uh, there in Nebraska well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I wish you guys just as much success in everything you guys are doing also. So thank you, and thanks for All having right. me on. Well, thanks, right. Janine. Thank we'll put you on hold if you want to continue to listen. All right. So. Sorry, Aaron. That's all right. Uh, we'd like to remind our uh, listeners, if you're listening in, you'd want to talk to uh, one of our guests, you may do so at 347-215-9442. Uh, be sure to press 1. My name is Aaron Lax. I'm alongside with Robert Brining. This is Paz I Am. Uh, we're going to play a song real quick, and then we're going to bring our next guest, um, uh, Chelsea, uh, Chelsea uh, Gooden-White uh, on. Um, so here we go. Cow goes moo, the frog goes croak, and the elephant goes toot. Ducks they quack, and fish go blub, and the steel goes ow, ow, ow. But there's no sound that no one knows. What does the frog say?
<laughs> you know, I love that song every time I play it. I know it's a pretty long song. So you know, um, Saturday Night Saturday Night Live did a spoof of that song, and it's called "What Does My Girl Say." You have to go Google it on YouTube and check it out. It's kind of funny. Um, it, it's hilarious, actually. So yeah, I, I just want to know what the what the fox says. For all listeners, my name is Aaron Langston. I'm alongside with Robert Brining, um, and I'm very excited. The next guest that we have um, uh, was diagnosed with HIV at 21 years old uh, between her junior and senior year in college. Um, she was told that she was uh, 10 weeks pregnant, and HIV catapulted her into a career of working with um, HIV-positive adolescents. Um, she developed and implemented um, the first and only HIV program for youth, in the South. youths aged um, 12 to 24, and the program has yielded success, um, uh, serving 81 youth in 2013 with a 35.8% um, rate of achieving undetectable viral loads, uh, with the national average um, being only 25%, so they're far above that. Um, so welcome to the show, Chelsea. Hello, how are you guys tonight? How are you? We're just we're Good wondering night. what the fox says. I mean, can you do you know what the fox says? <laughs> I don't know what the fox says. <laughs> Maybe it's cold. <laughs> it is cold. It is cold. We're very excited to have you on the show because uh, you may have heard earlier when we were talking to Janine. Um, you know, this typically isn't a a topic uh, that comes up a lot um, when we talk about HIV. Typically, in the media or um, uh, in aid service organizations, the, the conversation is generally shaped towards um, the MSN community. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting to hear perspectives outside of that, that demographic. Um, so that's why I'm really excited to have you on tonight. Oh, well, thank you. I, I did listen to Janine, and um, I, I love Janine. We actually had the opportunity to meet. I came to Nebraska one time, and um, we sat down and had lunch. She's an amazing woman, so I'm glad to be on the show with her. Um, one of the things that she said that really I feel equally as powerful was that where would we be in this in this without gay men and, and their fight? And that's not only a personal thing, but it's also like within the AIDS movement, um, ACT UP and, and all of um, the amazing advocacy work that was done early on and, and continues now in the LGBT community. So, um, so what are the you know you uh, I read a little bit of your bio and I'm just really um, I'm amazed at the the work that you're doing phenomenal work. Um, I noticed that you uh, you've completed your uh, MSW um, and you're married with two children. Um, what what is life like um, where you live? You know, give us a little uh, a portrait of kind of what life is like for you and for those living with HIV where you're where you live. Well, um, yeah, actually, it was the only it's the only youth program in the South. Um, well, kind of from DC to Atlanta. Um, so, and one of the reasons why I developed it is because of what it looks like to live with HIV in this region. Um, I know HIV is extremely stigmatized everywhere, but in the South. It is sort of like um, astronomical rates with, like, nobody gets it. Like, I can do a whole HIV 101 series. And one thing I always like to emphasize is 
HIV and AIDS are not the same thing. AIDS is a clinical term, so just take AIDS and throw it out of your vocabulary because everybody who has AIDS is also HIV positive, but most people who have HIV don't have AIDS. And inevitably, it'll be, oh, people with AIDS, write in the questions and answers. I'm like, did you listen? <laughs> um, right. People just don't get it. They don't, they don't, they hear what they want to hear, and nobody ever thinks it's going to happen to them. Nobody ever thinks that they know somebody. Um, I can look around rooms, and I've been in the field down here for so long that I've crossed paths with several of them, whether it be in a clinic, in an aid service organization, um, wherever, and the whole room thinks that they've never met anybody with HIV. That's how silent it is. Um, So it's kind of crazy. It's really, really nice to be able to be plugged in. I heard Janine talk about, like, online communities and the national communities, um, and it is really nice. That was one of the things that really helped me come to a comfort level of being able to speak out in this, in this area and, and not having it be so closed. Um, the MSM rates or the men who have sex with men rates down here are equally um, as high, I think, as other places, but oftentimes when we go out and do outreach, they want somebody like me, a heterosexual woman, to speak because they feel like that's more, um, like I'll get to more people because the norm is not gay, which is somewhat offensive um, because (laughs) who creates norms? (laughs) And I really think uh, sexuality is more of a fluid thing than um, anything. so. So I'm like that token positive person that they want. Um, to go and tell her story. Um, Unfortunately, it's always the women are viewed as the victims when it comes to HIV, Um, and that's another thing. I don't know if it's like that nationally, but it's definitely like that down here. You know, oh, the poor girl got HIV. Well, the poor girl laid down without a condom, so um, until people start really taking responsibility for their own actions, um, you know, you you can't put it on a man and... It's just, it's crazy. Charlie, this is Robert. Um, you know, when I first came across you and, and heard, heard your story, it was actually when you filmed the video for Does HIV Look Like Me? And you were actually, like, one of the first people that I, you know, reached out to and I felt like I was connected to because I actually sent in a video for that and, and you know, Todd, and he, he, he used my video for the website. And it was, like, the first connection to HIV was, that um, organization. And was that the first time that you actually spoke out publicly about being HIV positive? Was in actually, that campaign? No. No, no I, um, I was in HIV plus, um, mm-hmm. and everything happened really quickly within like a nine-month period. After I was in HIV plus, then PAWS reached out to me, um, and PAWS put me on their cover in 2000 and. I don't know, eight or six, Uh, what year is it now? Yeah, 2006, Um, in January of 2006. So while they were preparing their cover story, um, Oprah contacted Paz, and then I went on Oprah. So I went on Oprah in October, and then the cover story came out in January, and then I started working with Todd right after that. So so So, how was that experience to go on Oprah? I mean, that's public as it gets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's very interesting. Um, 
Oprah is an interesting woman. Um, that experience, that actually happened very, very quickly. We did some interviews um, that week, and then she called and was like, uh, she called at 9 o'clock at night, and she was like, a car is coming to get you at 6 a.m. to bring you out here. And we filmed, I can't remember if we filmed that day or the next day. And so that happened very, very quickly, and I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to do it, um, but I did it, and nothing bad came out of it. But since we're talking about kids, my son was impacted. He was two at the time, and I didn't even think about, you know, because he couldn't really understand, so I really didn't think about the repercussions to him. But when I came home, and I picked them up from daycare, like all of the daycare teachers were freaking out, like, oh, my God, why didn't you tell me? Freaking out, I guess, in a positive manner. But the next day, the one of the daycare teachers that I was very close with pulled me aside and told me that one of the other little boys in my son's class, mother, asked was that me on Oprah and could her son be moved to a different class. Wow. Um, yeah, and so ever since then I've been a little bit more cautious about how it impacts him. And I heard Janine talking a little bit about that as well. And um, how old so is he now? He's nine. So so how is that now? Does he? How do you have that conversation with him now? Like Janine was talking about when she told her son she used the, the term bugs in her blood. How have you had that, that conversation? That was cute. With I like kids? that. Um, <laughs> I actually, I might, well, he's a little old for bugs in your blood now, but um, I never really hid it from him. I can remember when he was about four, and I was taking, I was still single at the time, and so I was taking him to outreach events with me all the time, and he got into my outreach bag, and he put a sticker with a red ribbon on it, and he was just giggling, and I was like, what is so funny, Noah? And he turned around and he was like, I have HIV on my face. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> Not cute. cute. Um, not exactly. <laughs> um, so, but don't we? I didn't hide it from him, but we never really had the conversation. And it's funny because when I used to do a lot, I used to do a lot more speaking before um, the program really started picking up, um, uh-huh. and my my job got much more heavy. I'll say um, he. <laughs> um, he would always come with me but never really asked any questions. It was that one incident, and that was really it. So it was never hidden, but it was never talked about until about six months ago. Um, and about six months ago, we were driving to his football practice, and he was like, Mom, and I was, I was on the phone with one of my clients, and I had hung up, and he was like, Mom, do you have HIV? And I said, uh, yes, I do. And he said, oh does my dad have HIV? And I said, yes, he does. He asked if my husband had HIV. I said, yes, he does. He said, oh, do I have HIV? I said, no, you don't. How do you get HIV? And I said, well, um, through two things, uh, a couple of ways. One of the ways is um, if you get a blood transfusion. One of the ways is um, a mommy can give it to her baby, but I didn't give it to you or your brothers. Um you can get it through using dirty needles or you can get it through a man and a woman showing their love for each other in an adult way, <laughs> which is so weird because when I was young, young, younger and I was doing a lot of the outreach, I would always preach that you should teach your kids about sex at such an early age and 
um, telling parents how to do it, and then it was me in the position, and I'm, like, trying to get out of it. (laughs) And so (laughs) it was really reality for me, and I really had to sit down and think, like, this is a topic we have to approach. Um, But he continued to ask questions. He was like, oh, well, um, do you get I horribly still smoke cigarettes, which I'm trying to quit. But he was like, can you get them from smoking? And I was like, no, you can't get it from smoking. He said, oh, well, did HIV give you those freckles? And I said, <laughs> no, they didn't give me the freckles. He said, good, because I don't want the freckles. <laughs> and that was it. Well, there's something to be said about the, the innocence there. You know, the, the, you know this in, inquisitiveness, this curiosity, um, and... And, you know, the necessity to deal with that on his own terms. So although he had been around this, um, it wasn't really until he was ready to deal with it or, or where he came to a point where he was, you know, asking the question. And I think that's very interesting for uh, – I don't have children, so that may not be an issue that I ever uh, deal with as a, as a gay man. Right. I um... – I don't know. It, it, it was it was very innocent, and I, I kind of appreciated that from him. He definitely caught me off guard because um, I was just so into my work and dropping him off on football and getting there on time. And so he get he caught me off guard, and I, I kind of wish I guess that's how kids do. But um, I really wish that I had been better prepared for it. Uh, <laughs> and then I just oh, and I also had a conversation with him after he finished asking the questions the same conversation that Janine had with her son, which I thought was um, kind of funny because we're in two totally different places in the country, but I also talked to him about not talking about it at school, um, which is really shameful that we have to teach our children to keep it quiet because we fear for the repercussions that they might get. It's sort of like fueling the stigma, which I really hate, but then at the same time, I want my mother's instinct is to protect them. So although I want to fight and say, like, it's not right that we have to stay silent about it, I don't want him to be bullied or picked on or... So I think that's a very difficult um, kind of thing to balance. Yeah, I couldn't imagine that, not not having a child. Um, How has your family dealt with your diagnosis? Um, it's still not talked about very much at all. Um, I think I remember oh, oh, the last time I spoke with you, I told you that I can clear the, the Thanksgiving table without having to do any dishes and just start talking about, you know, how well, how well I'm doing or the medicine or anything about HIV. Uh-huh. Um, and it's kind of still like that. Like, nobody asks. I don't really talk about it. If I start talking about it, they're like, oh, okay, it's just, my family is very like it's there, but we're not just we're just not going to talk about it. I right. talk about my job more, like the administrative part, like writing grants and stuff like that. Um, I have had some. Since we're talking about kids, I think it's unique. We've had two deaths and one that we're about to put in hospice in the last eighteen months, and all of them have been children that were born with HIV. Um, and, of course, they're like 18, 20, and 23. Um, but I think there's something to be said for that because those are definitely the, the hardest for us, at least in our program. Um, so I, I, 
I guess that makes me even more grateful that my children were not born with it. And I actually, I work with the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, and we collaborate closely with the HPTN network um, mm-hmm. as well as, as IMPACT. And I know that that's one of the things that advocates have spoken up about in regards to the IMPACT network, um, uh, about children who have been born um, infected with HIV. And then as they age out of that adolescent or, or um, child system, crossing into the adult system. And I think many times we tend to think that there are no more children being born with HIV. That's, that's, that's a misnomer. Um, can you speak a little bit, I mean, about the prevalence, at least in the, uh, in the southern region where you are? Are there still uh, children being born with HIV? There is. It's rare. Um, it's probably about one a year. Um, and a lot of it is, and I know you've probably heard about the baby that was born with it in, I think, Mississippi um, or Alabama. It's, it's a little further down south and west. But um, it's a lot of that. Mothers that are not getting prenatal care or um, not getting tested for HIV, mostly not getting prenatal care or just have this uh, horrible reaction when they're diagnosed and pregnant with no support that they just don't take their medicine or um, or it also could be uh, people who are addicted to drugs because those we know that those drugs, particularly crystal crack coke and um, molly now, uh, can fuel HIV and that viral load makes it more likely that the virus will transmit to the baby. So a lot of times you see just completely non-compliant, no prenatal care or drug-addicted parents that are having the positive children. <laughs> um, also, the, another thing that I we work really hard on um, in, is the enrollment of HIV-positive women into clinical studies. Um, there was recently, uh, I was just in D.C. for our fall leadership retreat, um, and the leadership had a presentation that showed um, the level of understanding um, in uh, African-American and Latino populations about clinical uh, studies or clinical trials was very low, or public knowledge about those, but that the, you know, the success rate or the, you know, once a person participated in the studies that they had a high level of satisfaction and typically said that they would do it again. What we've worked really closely with the community, um, we have uh, several female ad- advocates um, and we really work to uh, change the, the culture of not, a, not, of lowering the barriers for female enrollment. And I, I thought the reason I'm saying that is whenever you first came on, you were talking about the perception of how we view women. And women are always viewed as the victim. Um, and there's also the misconception, at least in the research side, that females cannot be, cannot control their own reproductive health. Um, and and I, I, that always strikes me as a, a very alarming thing when we view the women in that preview. Yeah. Um, I, I wish people, well, that's a side, side note is I wish the government would stay out of my ovaries. But um, <laughs> uh, the 
I think that women. I'm sorry, my sleeping child just came in. This just got dropped off, so I kind of got thrown off a little bit. But um, <laughs> I think that women and the research study, particularly with minority women, I don't know if you're looking at a historical bar- barrier from the Tuskegee trials, but it's been my experience that it's also harder to engage women in care and harder to retain them in care. Um, and I don't know why that is, but that has been something that's been proven just from my personal groundwork in the Charlotte area time and time again, is that those we're, we lose women to care quite often. Um, uh, we do quarterly meetings where we put the boys and the girls together for support group, and a lot of the males are MSM, and it's very interesting to hear their experience in dating and how it differs from women. Um, I think that it's just the knowledge base, the the willingness to learn from women is a lot lower. I think the stigma, at least in the South, is still a lot heavier for a, a heterosexual woman as far as dating and family and um, even in the churches, it's still silent. I just did World AIDS Day presentation for my church um, and it was very interesting because it was the most nervous I had been disclosing my status and people all over other sectors of my life already knew my status and some in the church but when I got up to disclose my voice was shaking and that hasn't happened in I've been positive for 10 years that probably hasn't happened in nine years Um, and I think it's because the the Stigma around women and and HIV is just it's it's so horrible. And when we talk about the functional cure, obviously before this week, um, you mentioned that is all the men in at least in our support group say that they would never try it because of the implications of quality of life. And the women are like, oh, I'm down. I don't care what it does to my body. Get it out. Just get HIV out of me. And so. I don't know if it's just their unwillingness to want to accept it or the additional barriers or possibly I look at my schedule and I think maybe it's the schedule because I'm running around here and there and daycare and sports and play practice and work. And so maybe, I don't know. I don't know what it is. That's a very interesting point that you bring up because it's one thing for for me as a you know 34 year old male. I have a job, but if I have an off day, if I don't feel well, that's you know I can generally kind of cover it up a little bit, and then my coworkers and everybody knows. It's a completely different scenario if you have two toddlers and you have a husband and you have things that you need to do and you have practices and you have those other things that other people that are reliant on you, um, it's not quite as easy, is it? No. (laughs) And I say that very sternly because I I have not had a night off. And I looked just today, I was kind of reflecting on it as I sat waiting on my son to finish play practice in almost three weeks. And so if I get sick, I mean, because my husband will watch the two little ones and I'll take Noah out to his practices or vice versa. I don't really know what we would do. When I get when I do get sick, 
no one misses something or, you know, things kind of shut down a little bit. But if he gets sick, they don't really shut down. I don't know why that is. I think they were yeah, women strong. That's very interesting. It's uh, you know, it's I, I, it's always interesting to see, to look at other, you know, other um, other lives and and think outside of our out of out of our own life. Now I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit uh, okay. because. We said in your bio that you had created um, the only program, it's a, a specific program for youth age um, 12 to 24, um, and that you've really seen some you know, huge successes, um, at least uh, with the numbers we have for this last year. But can you talk just briefly about what, if any, um, challenges you've had um, as a result of sequestration or budget cuts this, this last year? Well, we were lucky. We weren't really going to face a, a large one this coming year more than anything. We were actually lucky as a TGA, which is our transi transitional grantee area, which is made up of seven counties, one county in South Carolina and six counties here in North Carolina, um, because where everybody else received cuts across the board. We received a cut, but because they had overpaid us, in, I mean underpaid us, excuse me, in previous years, we received the least cut out of everywhere um, as far as Brian White funding. So that really benefited us. However, we won't see that extra money this year, and then we'll see a cut on top of that. So we're really looking next year, um, trying to scrounge around, and um, we're always being asked to do more with less, but I think that that really compromises the integrity of the program because it's that one-on-one -on -one connection that really, I think, helps people thrive. And just like Janine was saying, her local ASO kind of took over the support group and had people run who was not positive. We base it on a peer model. So we train HIV-positive people to work directly with the youth. And so although we can't, by human resources, say that they have to be positive, we do use a peer model and try to choose, um, try to give priority to people that know firsthand some of this stuff. Um, you, anybody that knows anything about money can tell me how we're supposed to do anything. We have two full-time employees. How are we supposed to keep everybody going with $50,000? There's just no way we can do it. So we're going to have to look to sort of diversify our funding or else I don't, I don't really, I'm kind of a little bit freaked out about that right now because you have 81 youth that are really counting on the program to continue and it's seen such success. And I just don't know. I mean, it's unfortunate, but they just did a huge article um, in Q Notes down here and they talked about the lack of interest and the lack of donations coming from the LGBT community um, who have always been our primary funding source. And the article cited that um, it could be the interest in gay marriage or whatever the interest has shifted from HIV, and it's sort of not the hot topic anymore. Um, but we're seeing the rates just continue to rise. So I don't know how to keep the program going unless we continue to look at foundations. But unfortunately, those foundations are often like two years here, and then you've got to look for another one and two years here. Um, so it's just a constant battle to continue it all the time, fighting for money. Hmm. 
I wish that was a, a unique thing that was, uh, you know, unique to your program. Unfortunately, yeah, as we talk to people all across the country, that's a pretty common theme that we're seeing, and I don't think any of us have the exact answer on how to fix it. Yeah, and it's a shame because we know that people with suppressed viral loads lowers the community viral load, which has a positive effect on transmission rates. And, and everybody's talking about retaining people in care and how to retain people in care, but nobody's putting money towards it. So how are you supposed to do it with no money? Um, all the research is there to back up the work, but the money is not there. So that seems to be a common issue with a lot of different organizations, that the money isn't there. There's, there's people who are willing to do the work, but... People can't do everything for free. I mean, people have bills, so things have to be taken care of. Um, exactly. Tell me, um, b- before we let you go, because we're actually, believe it or not, almost uh, about to run out of time here. We have a few minutes left. Um, if there was a, a newly diagnosed young lady come up to you and, and you know, wanted some advice, what would, what would you tell her if she was, like, scared and afraid to, you know, move on after a diagnosis? What kind of advice would you give her? I would definitely tell her that HIV is far, far, far from a death sentence. Um, I used to tell people that it was a social death, and I don't even feel that anymore. It's a, it's a personal journey. Um, it's a personal journey and a, and a relationship that you will build with, excuse me, with many fabulous people, including your doctor, and that's very, very important for the success of, of her health. Um, you know, it's easier to manage HIV these days to manage diabetes. Uh, diabetes, you have to change your diet, watch what you eat, test your sugar. With HIV, all you have to do is see your doctor every three months and pop your pill or pills, depending on what regimen you're on, and you will be fine. You really, really will. You will be okay. Well, there you have it. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the show again. It's been great to, to catch up with you and find out what you're doing, and I am... You know, I look forward to following you on Facebook. Where can people find you or, or find out more about your organization if they want to contact you or, or to make a donation? Absolutely. It's um, RAIN, Regional AIDS Interface Network, R-A-I-N, comma, Inc. So RAIN, Inc. Um, it's in Charlotte, North Carolina. Or you can find me on Facebook, uh, Chelsea Galden, G-U-L-D-E-N. Um, and congratulations on your award. Oh, thanks so much. You're welcome. You have yourself a great Thank night. you. Thank you. You do the same. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. You've heard it here. I, I, I love speaking to women on the show because it's, it's, it's a story that's not told enough. Again, I feel like it's like we were talking, you know, through the whole show, the whole theme of the show has been how a lot of the focus in the media is on the gay men and, and has been. So it, I like having a different perspective and having – women come on and talk about it because this is affecting them just as much. It, it, it's really, I mean, the other thing is, when we, you know, sometimes we get so adjusted to what our life is. You know, I know for me, all my coworkers know I'm HIV positive. My clients know I'm HIV positive. And I would say stigma affects me very little. Um, and so when I hear these stories from around the country, and even around the world with my work with the ACTG, it's, it always takes me back to recognize that there are people, whether it be in Nebraska or, you know, North Carolina or wherever, where 
stigma is alive and well, and it has a huge impact on on your life. Yes, it does. And I like the fact that they 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 also touched on the fact of how their kids are affected by them being so open about it and, and what conversations they've had with their kids. So I think that's you know important for mothers who are you know maybe positive and are pregnant at the time and or wondering how to have that conversation or they have that small child who's about to you know start a certain uh, grade school or something like that and, and how to have the conversation with their kids about being HIV positive and there are two great examples of how you know they they shared that news with their child. I think Chelsea's kid was there too, talking about it in the car, you know, just randomly bringing it up. And, and I think that, that, you know, kids say the darndest thing, so. They do. And, you know, I, I uh, HIV on my face. I would never, that's, that was the cutest thing. And <laughs> so simple. Um, and, you know, whether it's Janine's son or Chelsea's son, I think it's amazing I think they're definitely raising um, children that are well-rounded, and that's the best chance we have of having a future generation that is free of stigma and shame uh, by how open they are with their children. So hats off to them. I hold them in the highest regard. I agree. So um, let's see. We can um, wrap up the show now. Aaron, uh, where can people find more information about you and, and, and follow you? Social media, Aaron Laxon, uh, or you can find me on YouTube at My HIV Journey. And how about you, Robert? Okay. And people can find uh, us on Twitter at PauseIM or my personal Twitter at PauseThePitch and more information on my show and, uh, um, you know, join the social network and find others living with HIV around the world. You can go to PauseIM.org. Um, Aaron, it's been a great week. Next week we'll be back with um, Robert, the founder of Fred Says. I'm excited. Uh, to be here and to have, you know, some new and exciting guests coming up that we haven't had on before. All right, Robert, you try to have a good week, and I will talk to you next week. Yes, stay warm, Aaron, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Have a great night. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes 
There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ShumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.